5. You are listening to the 542 and the Blue Podcast, discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author, and researcher. Thank you, ladies. I do appreciate the assistance today and in the past and in the future. Alice and Victoria, editors and producers for 542 in the Blue. In today's Shade of Blue story for 542 in the Blue, we're looking at the death penalty. More precisely, the death penalty of hanging. The how and why, the problems and issues of hanging a man correctly have been an issue of civilized man, if you'll pardon the expression, for centuries. Now, when government began the practice of hanging as punishment or as a deterrent to crime, several methods were developed over time. A lot of them by trial and error, of course, if you'll pardon the pun. There are several methods of hanging for executions that instigate and bring death either by fracturing of the spine or by strangulation. First method, briefly talk about the short drop. The short drop is done by placing the condemned on a stool, the top of a ladder or the back of a cart, maybe a horse, back of a truck, with a noose around the neck. The object or vehicle or animal is moved away, leaving the person dangling from the rope. Uh, We see this a lot of times represented in the media or in movies, the man on the horse with a noose around his neck and the cowboy movies. Suspended by the neck, the weight of the body is used to tighten the noose around the trachea and the neck causing strangulation and death. This usually takes 10 to 20 minutes to achieve the objective and before 1850 the short drop method was pretty much standard for hanging an individual. Then we developed the what is referred to as the pole method, a short drop variant. A lot of times it's referred to as, you excuse my German here, Wargeg again. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Literally it means strangling gallows. The condemned is placed against a pole on a riser of some sort. His legs are tied to a rope and pulley system at his feet and his neck is tied at the top of the pole. In one motion, the riser is removed and the rope to the feet is pulled at the legs and the subject is strangled at the neck. We have, of course, the standard drop. The standard drop uses a fall between four to six feet and came into use after, believe it or not, research done in 1866. This was considered the scientific method of execution. A lot of credit is given to Irish Dr. Samuel Houghton. This method spread to most English-speaking countries and those where the judicial system had an English origin. It was considered a more humane improvement over the short drop and it was intended to do enough to break the person's neck, causing immediate unconsciousness and a rapid brain death. This was used to execute the condemned Nazis under the United States jurisdiction after the Nuremberg trials. The next that came about in the 1870s, the measure drop. It was introduced in Britain about 1872. It was touted as the scientific advancement over the standard drop. Instead of everyone falling the same distance, person's height and weight were used to determine how much slack would be provided in the rope 
so that the distance drop would be enough to ensure that the neck was broken, but not so much that the person was decapitated, which actually happened on many occasions and caused the research study to be made and the production of the official table of drops. This was issued by the British Home Office and used to calculate the appropriate length of rope to use during a hang. The manual followed a series of failed hangings, including that of John Backaby Lee, who kind of lost his head during his sentencing follow-through. A committee chaired by a baron by the name of Henry Bruce was formed in 1886 to study the most effective and most humane manner of execution by hanging. The report was published in 1888 and recommended a drop energy of 1,260 foot-pounds of force. In practice, however, the hangmen often ignored the table and added length to the rope to ensure a proper follow-through. This caused a revised edition of the tables of drops to be produced in 1913 and more regulations established over the hanging of condemned prisoners. The table actually remains in use in former British colonies that have retained capital punishment by hanging. For example, Singapore. Now to bring us back to crime and punishment in the Appalachian Mountains. On October 2nd, 1905, Peter Smith was hung in Marshall, North Carolina, county seat of Madison County. Now most of us history nuts in western North Carolina are very familiar with the hanging of Peter Smith. Growing up in Madison County myself, I had heard the stories and have seen the photographs of Smith on the gallows in the county seat of Marshall in 1905. Consensus over the years, I was told, that Smith did not commit the crimes he had been accused of. First a murder, and then several years later, a rape. The 64-year-old Smith was tried and convicted of the November 1904 raping at knife point of Eva Suttles, a 15-year-old Madison County girl. Smith had previously been tried for a homicide of Hannah Plemons, his stepdaughter, but he was not convicted of that particular incident. The victim had been 15 years of age in the rape case. She lived with her father on Spring Creek in Madison County. On the night of November 8th, it's alleged, in 1904, according to her testimony, she went out of the house where she lived for about five minutes. When Smith came up, grabbed her from behind, stating he was going to take her to a Gadfield Suttles residence or cabin. Threatening to call out for her father, Smith put his arm around her waist and his hand over her mouth and forced her to go along with him. Smith took the 15-year-old girl about two miles away from her home and according to the testimony of the victim that was given in court, he sexually assaulted her or as the record appeared in the North Carolina Supreme Court records, quote, forced her to submit to him, unquote. Afterward, taking the victim to a creek ford above a Mr. Jesse Slagle's cabin, and again according to documents of the day, Smith required her to yield to him again and again. Also direct quotes from the court records. Smith was, according to some accounts, armed with a handgun. Other accounts in newspaper stories of the day said he used a knife to repeatedly threaten to kill the victim. A witness for the state, a Mr. Mayo Reeves, testified that he and an individual by the name of Wells 
were hunting above Jesse Slagle's cabin that night, and the dogs were running and barking on the mountain, and they were they sat down by the fire to wait, which is typical for coon hunting at night. They heard a woman hollering, and in two or three minutes, the victim, Eva Suttles, ran to them saying that Peter Smith was up on the mountain and had been trying to kill her. Miss Suttles requested to be taken home, but was instead taken to the Slagle cabin where she spent the night and related the circumstances of her assault. Smith was located and placed into custody. Grand jury was called, a true bill was issued, and he went to court on the felony charges in 1905. He was found guilty of the sexual assault and appealed the case automatically, of course, to the North Carolina Supreme Court, who reviewed the abundant evidence and statements corroborated the victim's testimony and the testimony of the state witnesses. A witness for the state, Mr. Plemons, testified that he had the prisoner in custody and while he made no threats, offered no inducements to the prisoner on the way to the jail, the prisoner voluntarily stated to this witness that if he ever got out of this scrape, he would never allowed to be guilty or bring back in jail again that when he left jail before he never aimed to go back that he was in jail three years ago for killing a girl yes that was the testimony of mr plemons based on what he said the defendant told him lawyers for smith also objected to the testimony of a mr jasper ebbs who testified to the statement earlier that smith had made to him upon the grounds that ebbs was later made his attorney in fact and that all the statements were made to Ebbs, and that the statements that were made to Ebbs were actually inadmissible in court. The North Carolina Supreme Court did not buy into that aspect, as the comments were made to Mr. Ebbs before he was Smith's lawyer of record. I kind of think this goes to show how justice in that day wore actually many hats. Not only was Ebbs the attorney for Smith, but he was also a special deputy assisting in securing the defendant before the trial. After these declarations were made to Ebbs, the prisoner's father asked Ebbs to do what he could for the prisoner, and the prisoner at the same time made the same request. Mr. Ebbs promised that he would, and the Supreme Court overruled the objection. The ruling is stated in the following language, quote, that being in the custody of an officer and having made the declarations as testified to by the witness to a man to whom he had gone for advice and help and who afterwards acted as his attorney de facto in the examination before the justices of the peace such declarations made under such circumstances would not be admissible but the objection the prisoner was in custody of an officer when the declaration was made is untenable, therefore bringing no evidence whatever of inducement of force or that at the time the witness was acting as the defendant's attorney. The relationship of client and attorney at law did not exist at the time between Ebbs and Smith. Ebbs did not act as his advisor before the trial before the Justice of the Peace, but he had no legal right to appear as the attorney in any court in the state, and there is no evidence that he did. Court will not extend the rule as to privileged communications in this matter. The exception is overruled. Mr. Ebbs at the time was not a member of the North Carolina Bar. This is really 
you have to dig into it to kind of figure out what was going on or understand what was going on. Uh, Mr. Ebbs was acting, like I said, as a special deputy, which was very common. You kind of had to deputize who you needed to in law enforcement matters, and he was actually guarding the prisoner. Later, Mr. Ebbs, upon passing the bar before the trial, was asked by the defendant and the defendant's family to represent him. His testimony before the original justice of the peace who found probable cause for holding him over was not made while he was an attorney for the defendant. Another exception to the evidence presented brought up by the defense and to be considered by the jury was that 15-year-old Settles failed to make outcry at the time of the assault and made none any time during the night. Now this goes against the testimony that the victim made as well as some of the witnesses. The court instructed the jury that if this was true under North Carolina law, it was strong circumstantial evidence against the truth of her statement. The court, according to the Supreme Court, gave this instruction correctly. It was a material fact to be weighed and considered by the jury, but the weight or strength to be given to it is for the jury and not the judge to determine. There also was testimony from state witnesses of hearing the yelling or hollering from the victim. The defense attorneys were saying that she did not object, therefore she was a willing participant if something had occurred. According to the North Carolina Supreme Court, examination of the record shows that the prisoner had been fairly tried by an able and unusually painstaking judge and has been convicted upon evidence that leaves no reasonable doubt of his guilt. He fully deserves the penalty he must pay for the shocking crimes he has committed. No error was found upon review. More than 1,000 people gathered to hear Smith make a final statement on the day he was executed. The execution itself was only witnessed by around 50 people as no public access to the execution was made available. And of course, like I said earlier, this was not Peter Smith's first contact with law and the court system. Smith had been held years earlier for the death of a young girl. The head of a 14-year-old girl was discovered at Meadowfork Branch about 15 miles north of Marshall. The girl's name was Hannah Fleming, and she was the stepdaughter of Peter Smith, on whom suspicion was at once fastened and who was brought to Marshall and placed in jail. A newspaper of the day, the reporter described Smith as appearing very indifferent to the serious and awful charge. In an interview, he told conflicting stories to investigators and the media appeared exceedingly self-possessed for a man charged with so great a crime. The first information received at Marshall that Sunday left most who heard it inclined to not really give credence to the story according to the papers. In fact, the details of the story were so bizarre and so unusual even at that time period that most people thought it was uh, make-believe. It was all made up. The truth of the matter was Hannah Fleming was murdered. She was a 15-year-old young girl, very pretty according to the newspapers. While she had seen much of the more seamier side of life, 
It is also true that she had attended school and come in contact with people who had taught her the meaning of some that is best in life. She had lived with the Christian Workers Band, missionary organization who provided her with clothing and under whose direction she was being educated. But Hannah was wayward and strong-willed. She enjoyed the companionship of her youthful peers as well as the attention of older individuals. Hannah ran away from the missionary school in Hannah ran from the missionary school in Hot Springs to return to the home of her childhood, also the home of her stepfather, Mr. Peter Smith. The crime scene located at Meadow Fork Branch was miles from the railroad and information of any kind out of that area was difficult to get out. Apparently, Hannah was sitting on a log a few hundred yards from her home. It was thought her killer had approached her from behind, pulled her across the log and cut her throat so that the head was almost severed from the body. The murderer threw the body on one side of the log in a pile of leaves which were set on fire apparently with the hope that the crime be hidden. The flames consumed the body, but as the face and all but severed head were scarcely burned at all. The fire spread until the woods burned for miles around, exposing to view hundreds of bushels of chestnut. And while looking for these chestnuts, later a man found the remains. The mother of the girl was notified and at once recognized the face of her daughter. It was reported that the mother loved her wayward daughter and was seriously disappointed and sad in having to have placed the girl in the care of the Christian workers missionary group for what she thought was the young girl's own good. The mother gave some sensational evidence at the preliminary hearing. She stated her daughter had told her that a Mr. Henry Frisbee a well-known citizen and property owner had been responsible for a pregnancy that she had. It will be remembered that Smith, the stepfather, declared his innocence and that he would establish the fact that a prominent man in is responsible for the girl's downfall. It is further said that the crime was committed on land owned by Frisbee. Smith pointed the finger at Frisbee for the pregnancy but gave actual no evidence in court that Frisbee had actually committed the murder. No testimony of an alibi for Smith was presented. Smith was described in Asheville, North Carolina newspapers as an unusually dark and complexion individual and having, quote, an evil visage that is in accord with his record. Smith had previously been arrested on a rape charge. The victim failed to appear against him and appeared to have disappeared entirely from the community. He was also arrested sometimes later after that arrest and before the murder. He was arrested and served time for ambushing a man and striking him with a rock in the dark. But this was all past history. This day in October 1905, at about 12.30 p.m., Smith would address the crowd saying, quote, I am not frightened. Guilty men are scared and after professing his love for his family and friends, he added, I love my enemies too, and those who have falsely sworn against me. This was the second official hanging on record in Madison County, the other of a Cunningham man, whose trial was moved here from Buncombe County out of concerns of an attempted escape. That is actually a very interesting story, and we will talk about that particular shade of blue in another episode. Before the sentence was finalized, Madison County Sheriff Cole asked a 
Dr. Robert, the attending physician, to make a statement to the crowd expressing his regrets that they weren't allowed to see the execution as the law forbid it and the sheriff must follow the law. Only 50 people out of that entire crowd were allowed to view the final execution. Smith's final statement is as followed. I'm going to read this verbatim as it is his final statement. Friends, I met you now for the last time, but I am going to a better place. All take warning. I have been charged with many things. God knows how they are and the actual people responsible. I have been kicked about a good deal, but they are done kicking me around, for I will soon go away. I am ready to go home. I will not stay but a few words, as I am too weak to talk, but don't think I am scared. I have made peace with my God, and I am going home to Him. I can't come to you anymore, but you can come to me if you serve God. I love my friends and my enemies alike. I am going home. It takes truth, not bluffing, but truth from the heart. Serving God is the best work of man. I have had some time to serve with him and am going home to him in a few minutes. I am not guilty of the crimes as charged against me, but I am sick and can't talk anymore. Goodbye, friends. Smith was then taken back into the jail where he dropped into a chair from exhaustion. Being so weak from sickness, stress, and his confinement, the sheriff had to support him while he had made his talk. At 12.55, the sheriff was handed a telegram, and all was quiet and suspenseful for a moment. It was thought that it was perhaps a reprieve, but no, it was not. The sheriff called the lawyers to one side and read the message from the governor, stating he had declined to further interfere in the matter. At one o'clock, Sheriff Cole told Smith that it was time to go, and he was assisted from his chair and walked with the sheriff to the gallows. The Reverend C.O. Gray, who had been advising and praying with Smith since he had been brought to the jail, went with him. A Reverend B. Compton and two lady missionaries who had sat with Smith while he was in the Buncombe County Jail in Asheville to prevent a lynching of the condemned man. They accompanied the prisoner to the scaffolding where, by his request, the lady missionaries sang a hymn. Reverend Compton from the Bible then offered a very fervent prayer that the local paper said, quote, brought tears to the eyes of strong men, unquote. This was Smith's only time of showing emotion breaking down and weeping bitterly. The Madison County Sheriff with his deputy, Deputy Nick White, and with the assistance of the Buncombe County Sheriff, Sheriff Reed, made the final arrangements and adjustments. Smith smiled and said goodbye. Sheriff Reed placed the black hood over his head. Sheriff Cole placed the noose around his neck. When properly adjusted, Cole took his position below the scaffolding. When released by Sheriff Reed, who had been supporting him, Smith came near to falling backwards from weakness, but he slowly recovered and was able to stand on his own. Reed gave the signal, and Sheriff Cole pulled the lever. The trap sprung. The drop of six feet broke Smith's neck, paralyzing him. No sign of struggle was visible, and it was 1.15 when the trap fell, in five minutes before, Dr. Roberts and a Dr. Jones pronounced Peter Smith dead. Four minutes later, the body was taken down and placed in a coffin and delivered 
to George W. Gudger and Freeman morticians at the request of Smith's wife. She had arranged to send the body to his old home on Spring Creek. The people of Marshall contributed the money necessary for this purpose. Two nickels were given to Smith's wife and son. Peter Smith's only earthly belongings were these two nickels, which he had requested the sheriff to give one to his wife and the other to his little boy, John Smith. Peter Smith had asked them that they keep them always. The hanging a success, Sheriff Cole had everything in order, and the execution was carried out with efficiency and without issue. Smith had been arrested for criminal assault upon Eva Suttles. He was tried and found guilty with a recommendation of the jury for mercy, but under the law, the court could only give one sentence for that particular crime, and that was death. An appeal was taken to the North Carolina Supreme Court, which confirmed the lower court's decision. The case was then carried to the governor, who gave Smith a respite from May to August, then September 14th, and then to October 2nd, where after considering the evidence, he declined to take further interference with the sentence of the court. Smith had been charged with other crimes in the past, as I've said, but had not been convicted of any of them except for the assault charge, the most serious charge being that of the killing of his stepdaughter some years ago, but the grand jury didn't issue a true bill in that case. Smith left a statement behind in which he says that Harry and Columbus Frisbee were the ones that killed his daughter and gave a Jim and Ben Allison as witnesses. The Madison County newspaper reported he died protesting his innocence and had all the appearance of being sincere. Perhaps this is where the stories of Smith being framed came from that I heard when I was growing up. If there was reasonable doubt in his guilt, as there had been in the murder of his stepdaughter, 12 members of the community might not have found him guilty. Let's not forget the case was reviewed by the justices of the North Carolina Supreme Court who found no problems in the trial, as well as the sentence of hanging was delayed by the governor several times while it was in review by him and his office. The governor declined to take further action. Guilty or not guilty, I guess that's up to us to make our decision. Twelve men earlier in history made theirs. The one fact that we can be sure of, on October 2nd, 1905, Peter Smith was hung by his neck until he was declared dead at Marshall, North Carolina. I know this because I've seen the pictures. Thank you for listening. I hope this shade of blue makes you stop and think a moment. And please don't forget, my latest adult novel is out, Cop and Copperhead, available at Amazon.com, and of course my website, ScottLunsfordAuthor.com as well as uh, my latest juvenile or young adult book, The Girls from Gift, Girls Investigating Fantastic Things, the Bigfoot Best Friend Investigation. I hope you can come back for some more Shades of Blue. In the meantime, please stay safe and secure. Ladies, back to you. It's your turn. Five, four, three. You have been listening to the 542 in the Blue podcast. Discussions of law enforcement, history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast, you can go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. You can find a link to the podcast website along with and information on Scott's books and how to order them.
Scott can be reached through the message portal on the contact page. This is Alice, your podcast editor. 2. 1. Background Theme Mystery Sex by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons. 2. 1. End.